0: And if you would turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at just a few verses there to begin tonight's study, and we're going to bounce around quite a bit in the Word of God, so hopefully you've got your Bibles handy and we'll uh, look together at some of the things that the Word of God declares with regard to the Spirit of God. And it's a very important thing for us to really get a good understanding of what we're going to be looking at tonight. Because in the week or two following, we'll be doing an intensive study on uh, the several gifts of the Spirit. But I'm not sure that we'll actually get into any of the gifts in our study here tonight. But by way of introduction to the work of the Holy Spirit, I'd like to uh, first read uh, that portion of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That begins with verse 1, where Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren... I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Now, before we go too much further, I just want to share with you that what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is very important. He's saying, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul commended them that they were a spirit-filled church. And as we look further into our studies in chapters 12 through 14, we will find that they were very well versed in all of the gifts that Paul will mention here in this chapter 12. And they just didn't quite understand how to use the gifts, what the gifts' purposes were. And so Paul goes into great detail here in 1 Corinthians uh, on their behalf to explain to them uh, the not only purpose of the gifts, but the use of the gifts and how important it is that we would be very careful not to uh, misuse them. Because it is important that the gifts be utilized in the church in a way that edifies the church. And Paul is going to emphasize that over and over again. In fact, he's already talked about the fact that the body of Christ needs to edify one another. We looked at that in our earlier studies in 1 Corinthians, and that's central to what Paul will be saying here in these verses that we'll be looking at. But he doesn't want them to be ignorant concerning these spiritual gifts. And by the way, in verse 1, where it says concerning spiritual gifts, you should see the word gifts in italics, which means the word gifts is not in the original manuscripts. It's supplied by the translators because he is talking about spiritual gifts. However, his basic statement was now concerning spirituals or spiritualities or spiritual things. Um, And he's again saying, I don't want you to be ignorant because they were indeed ignorant of the things of God as Gentiles. They didn't have the uh, word of God Uh, as Paul, as being a Jew, would have had. And so he's spending a lot of time here telling them what they should expect with regard to the use of these gifts because they just simply wouldn't have known. But yet the Spirit of God was poured out mightily. And even though he says again in chapter 1 that they were spiritual, he also said in chapter 3 that they were carnal, which means that their flesh got in the way of the workings of the Holy Spirit in their ministries to one another. So, it's practical for us to begin our study on these very important verses of Scripture with the intent that we learn something about what the Holy Spirit is doing, has done, and will continue to do in the church. Now, that brings us to a point of contention among many churches in the world today. There are some who say that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer valid for the Church today because we have the written Word of God. And I submit to you that that is absolute false. And we know that even though they say that the gifts of the Spirit stopped at the time of the death of the last of the apostles, that simply is not true. Historically, the gifts of the Spirit are known to have been prevalent among the Church in many, many years after the apostolic age, after the first century. But there are also some that accept that perhaps some of the gifts are valid today, but not all of them, for the very same reasons. Uh, But our contention is that the gifts should be accepted as being available to all Christians, and I'll point out to each of you, hopefully tonight, uh, one of the major reasons why we make that point. But before we go any further, I'd like to take a little bit of a journey with you through the Scriptures. And I'm going to begin with Luke's chapter 11. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, and look with me what Luke says there with regard to the Spirit of God. Actually, it's the Lord Jesus speaking. And we're going to be looking at other places where Jesus is speaking of this Holy Spirit so we can get a good understanding from His perspective of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the churches. But in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, Jesus is talking to the disciples and reminding them that they have earthly fathers who give good gifts to their children. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. the Holy Spirit is available to anyone who would ask, and that's important. Now, he's not talking about at the moment of salvation, and I can clearly indicate to you, from experience, by I think all of us, that none of us, when we came to receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, none of us asked for the Holy Spirit. In fact, there are places in the Word of God in Paul's ministry when he asks the Ephesian uh, uh, Christians, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And their answer was, we've not even been made aware of anything that it resembles that name. Holy Spirit, they didn't recognize it. And so, they didn't ask for the Holy Spirit at the time of their conversion. However, they received the Holy Spirit at the time of their conversion. That's a given in the Word of God. When One is born again, one is always, in the word of God, very clear, filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit enters in to anyone who accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior. Jesus himself said that very thing in John chapter 3, in the very famous verses that talk about you must be born again. And he told Nicodemus that, You must be born of the flesh, obviously, but also of the Spirit. And that is where Jesus said that is the experience that he is referring to as being born again. So when you are born again, you receive the Spirit of God. You haven't asked for the Spirit at that point, but he's there present in you as part of that agreement between God and yourself that God has forgiven you of your sins and he has given you the Spirit of promise, so that you can live for Him. So, turn with me now to John chapter 7, and let's explore a little bit further what Jesus has to say with regard to the Holy Spirit. In chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, in verse 37. John 7, 37. Jesus is, again, teaching His disciples And he says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this, John tells us, he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And since Jesus hadn't yet been glorified, nobody at that point, what John was referring to as yet, nobody had received the Spirit because nobody had received Christ. His work on the cross had not been done yet. But when it was, it was a completed work. And His death on the cross paved the way for all men to be born again, as Jesus said, men must be, so we have in this passage what I would refer to as the effect of the spirit. Notice he says, Jesus' own words, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now living water again, John tells us is a reference to the Spirit of God pouring out of our hearts uh, and that word flowing out of the uh, the heart as as with living water, that word flowing is like a torrent, it is a very white water experience, if you will. And that's the, the, the way that Jesus described the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer. It would be obvious, it would be very, very easy to see that one is indeed filled with the Holy Spirit, because out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the effect of the Spirit of God in us. But Jesus also talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And in a couple of different places, He does so. So I'd like you to turn again in John's Gospel with me to chapter 15. And looking at verse 26 of chapter 15, we read these words of Jesus. But when the Helper comes, and that's the Spirit that He's referring to, the Holy Spirit is the Helper, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside... When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So the work of the Holy Spirit is a work that doesn't lift himself up, but rather lifts up Jesus, edifies the body of Christ through the preaching of the Word of God. The word of God is truth that he speaks of here. The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father will testify of me. That is the way the work of the Spirit is done in the church. It never points to himself. It always points to Jesus. And then in chapter 16, Jesus continues to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is very critically important as well, because the work of the Holy Spirit for the church is a work of comfort, a work of teaching, a work of instruction, a work of guidance. But the Spirit is also coming for those outside the church for a very specific reason as well. And Jesus talks about that in chapter 16 as he says in verse 7 of chapter 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart... I will send him to you. And when he is come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus is saying that the work of the Spirit here is a convicting work to those who are outside the faith. And that conviction is very real in the lives of those who are interested in the things of God. If they are not interested in the things of God, their hearts are closed to the Word of God, they're not likely to be convicted by the Spirit. But once they soften their hearts, once they begin to open their eyes, the Spirit is able to draw them to Himself. And again, His drawing Them, who are outside of the faith, is for the purpose of convicting of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And once that conviction has done its work, then there is repentance. And once there is repentance, then there is salvation. So, that's how Jesus has explained that the coming of the Holy Spirit will be. And he also, again, in the same chapter 16, you should read the whole chapter because it's there that Jesus talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit is our comforter. He is the one who comes alongside and will teach us everything we need to know because he loves us and he wants the very best for us and points us always to Jesus. Now we come to the place later, after the resurrection of Christ, you remember that there was a period of time after Jesus was raised from the dead that he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. So turn there with me in chapter 2, verse 1 of the book of Acts, where Jesus has already told his disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until the, the power that they were to receive, would come upon them. And Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now they all are about 120 followers of Christ. It's assumed at this point that almost all of them, if not all of them, had either seen the risen Savior, or knew that he was raised from the dead from the testimony of others. But they were gathered together in that upper room and it is there where they were just waiting as Jesus had instructed in Jerusalem until this event that Jesus had promised would take place. Interesting that Luke tells us when the day of Pentecost had fully come. The implication in that phrase is that although there was a Pentecost feast uh, where they worshiped the Lord on that day every single year from the time of Moses until that day in the first century when this day, the day of Pentecost, was fully come. In other words, there was a completion that had been accomplished on this particular day that had never before in all of the years prior to this been accomplished. This was a day that had been prophesied, and this was what the day of Pentecost pointed to as a picture of some future event that would take place, and this future event is now unfolding as Luke gives the account for us here. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we'll be looking at that phrase, speaking in other tongues, in another study perhaps. But it's obvious that something miraculous is taking place. They not only had this uh, experience of speaking in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterances, but it is also... The fact that there seemed to appear above each of their heads what looked like tongues of fire that sat on each of them. That was an experience that only happened on that one occasion. That has never happened again as far as we know. No record of it has ever been made of any experience like this. This was unique to the 120 who were waiting for the promise that Jesus had made to them that would ultimately be fulfilled on that day of Pentecost when it had fully come. So we see in this passage that something miraculous has taken place. And now there's a crowd that starts to gather around them as they begin to mill around the people in the temple area. And they're excited, they're praising the Lord and they're experiencing this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and people are gathering from all over. Now remember, the day of Pentecost was one of the three feast days that all Israel males had to come to Jerusalem for that feast. And so the city was filled with people from all areas of the known world of the Roman Empire, and they were there in Jerusalem for the same reason to observe the Feast of Pentecost, or Feast of, of Weeks, as it was called by, by Moses. So they're there in the presence of these 120, and they're observing something that they've never, ever seen before. And as they observe that, they realize that these are Galileans, and yet they're speaking in our native tongues. And they list them. There are 16 different regions that are described here in this early part, portion of chapter 2 of the book of Acts but I'd like to go down just a bit beyond that and read from verse 12, which is where they express their perplexion and now we have Peter, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, giving his very first message of the gospel. And listen to what it says in verse 12 of chapter 2. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And others mocking said, oh, they're just full of new wine. But Peter answered, standing up with the eleven, raising his voice, saying to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, you can't drink enough regular wine. You could do that with strong drink, but they were saying they're drunk with wine. No, you can't do that with wine in just three hours. It was diluted wine, and it wasn't practical for them to have been thought to be drunk at that early hour. These are not drunk, as you suppose, verse 15 says, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now take heed to what Peter is saying. The Old Testament Scriptures prophesied about this particular event. This infilling of the Holy Spirit was indeed mentioned by the prophet Joel and he's quoting now from Joel chapter 2, and he says in verse 17 of chapter 2 here in the book of Acts, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. He goes on to talk about some other things that Joel has said in that same very thing, but that actually will apply to a time further on in our day, still yet to be fulfilled. But take note of the fact that Joel has said that they will be filled by my Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Now, in the Old Testament economy, the Spirit was present in the lives of those who were specially called men and women, uh, as prophets, or men and women who did some great work for God, and the Spirit of God came upon them. But never in the Old Testament was every one of the people of God filled with the Spirit. That doesn't happen in the Old Testament. It only takes place during the New Testament era, in which we are part of. So there's an empowerment here by the Spirit of God to prophesy, to have special dreams and visions, and doing great things for God in terms of an emboldenment that they would have once the Spirit of God comes upon them and in them. Well, verse 37, near the end of what Peter has given in this great sermon, where he actually convicted them of sin and righteousness and judgment by the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking of the fact that Jesus was crucified and was raised from the dead, and that these things were done according to Scripture. Now, in, in near the end of chapter 2, at verse 37, he says this. Luke again is recording these things that have taken place. And he says, The people asked when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and that every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we were to stop there, as some people do, you might conclude that, well, that was what happened then. They received the Holy Spirit because Peter said that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and that's normal for that time. But it's not normal for us in our day. That is where people are misleading the body of Christ if they say those things where there's a limit to the effectiveness of the, or the work of the Holy Spirit in our present day, they are telling misguided mistruths. Because that's not the case at all. So verse 39 clarifies that for us. It gives us, gives me, I hope it gives you, the confidence to know that the things that are spoken of with regard to the Holy Spirit are not only for the first century church, but they are for all of us in today's church, during the eighteenth century, during the nineteenth century, during the fifteenth century, during all of the times of the church age, these things that are spoken of with regard to the Holy Spirit are obviously available to all who would believe. And here's the reason why we say that. Verse 39. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now the question is. Has he called you? Then you're included. Simple as that. You have been called. You've been saved. You've been born again. The Spirit of God dwells in you. And yes, you have the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit did for them, the Holy Spirit is still doing today because he's still the same Holy Spirit. He hasn't changed. He hasn't changed his format. He hasn't changed his formula. He hasn't changed his ministry. He's still the comforter. We all accept that. He still teaches. We all accept that. He still guides. We all accept that. But what about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Are they available for us today? That's what we're going to be looking at in the days ahead. But before, again, we do any of that, we still have a ways to go with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians Again in chapter 12. And look what Paul says with regard to the Holy Spirit in verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus cursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now what he's saying is the Holy Spirit is in every believer. And only a believer has the right to say that Jesus is Lord. Now, anybody can actually say that, but if it's not coming from the heart, it's meaningless. So, by the Holy Spirit, that is how those things that are being spoken of by Paul can be accomplished. But on the same note, he says, not only is it true that, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, but earlier in the verse he said, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. You can't, being filled with the Holy Spirit, say by the Spirit that Jesus is a curse. It just can't happen. Your love for Jesus is founded upon the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And you as a child of God, would never want to curse the name of Jesus if you are truly a child of God. Paul tells us that couldn't happen. Going back to Romans with me, take a look at chapter 8. Chapter 8 of the book of Romans, verse 9. Paul tells us there, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Paul is there saying something very similar to what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If the Holy Spirit isn't truly in you, then you're not a Christian. You don't belong to Christ. It's as simple as that. You have the Holy Spirit when you received Christ as your Lord and Savior. And that Spirit's presence is always there in the heart of the believer. You're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit because you have the Spirit of Christ. And because you have the Spirit of Christ, you are His. He holds you in His great love for you. Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 1 and look again now at what Paul says there with regard to the Spirit of God dwelling in the believer. He says in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13, in Him, talking about Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed With the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed. Past tense. It's a given. It's a finished work. The Spirit of God, when you asked Christ into your heart, sealed you like the signet ring of a king, placing his ring upon a document that seals that document as being from him. So it is with the Lord. He has sealed you with the Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit was promised to all who would believe. And when you received Him, you were sealed by that same Holy Spirit. You have been born again. And you have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can live for Him and glorify Him in all that you do and say. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we continue to serve Him. that's where we should be headed. Perfection in our service to the King. Now, we're not perfect yet. Paul had said in Philippians, I don't count myself as having attained, but I am pressing on to the high mark of the call of God in Christ Jesus. But I've been sealed with the seal of promise. That's what he says in verse 13 of chapter 1. Now turn to chapter 4 of the same epistle, Ephesians, and look at what Paul says in verse 30 of that great book of chapter 4, verse 30 of the book of Ephesians, and he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You realize you can indeed do things in your life if you're not following the will of God, not seeking to do His will. Sometimes you can be led astray into doing things that you should not be doing or saying And that is a time when the Holy Spirit is not actively leading you, guiding you. He's letting you do whatever it is that you've chosen to do. And it's grieving Him if you have chosen to depart from the faith, to depart from serving God faithfully and trusting in Him for everything. We are told here in Ephesians chapter 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And oh, how often... The saints of God have fallen into the trap of doing just that. And it hinders the work of the Spirit in us when we grieve the Spirit. Take note that we can also do something just as terrible. And it's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and look at verse 19 with me where Paul simply tells the Thessalonian church, do not quench the Spirit. It's important that we realize that there are things that we can do that we should not do. There are things that we can say that we should not say. Remember, Paul had been talking to the Corinthian church about those very things in previous chapters. He told them, yes, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful, not all things are helpful, and here in second uh, first Thessalonians chapter five, he simply states very matter of factly, "Do not quench the spirit. How do we quench the spirit? Well, we quench the spirit by not allowing him to have his way in us. That whole passage in Chapter Five of First Thessalonians is a wonderful passage that reminds us of Our obligation to pursue what is good, both for ourselves and for the body of Christ. He tells us in verse 16 of that chapter, and I'll I'll include verse 19, which we just read, but verse 16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies. Test all things, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every evil. That's the things that Paul is instructing the people of God, and he's doing that also here in 1 Corinthians. If you'll turn back there with me to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, where we began, let's take a look at what Paul tells us in verses 4 through 6, and we'll uh, end with our uh, time together in these verses. He says in verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries. But the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Take note of the fact that in verse four he's talking about the Spirit of God. Diversities of gifts, the same Spirit. In verse five he's talking about the Lord Jesus. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And in verse six he's talking about the Father. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. God the Father is involved. God the Son is involved. God the Holy Spirit is involved in all of our lives. As we come together as a body of Christ, fitly joined together, we have a responsibility to one another and to Him. And that obligation that we have is a good thing. We should never think of it as an overlording of our lives. It is a blessing to do these things. Take a look at First chapter of Ephesians and see how many blessings that Paul gives us there in that passage. But take note also of the fact that it's mentioned here that there are diversities of gifts, some of which we are going to look at in the days ahead. There are differences of ministries. Not all of them are mentioned here in this section of Scripture. There are diversities of activities. Not all of those are mentioned here in this passage of Scripture. In other words, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a listing, a partial listing of those gifts of the Spirit that he wants to pour out in his church. And we need to understand that there are other gifts as well. And we find them in a couple of other different places. And I'd like to end our study tonight by looking at those as well so that we can include all of the various gifts in our study as we move forward from this point on. Chapter 12 of the Book of Romans, beginning in verse 3. Turn there with me and we'll take a look at some of those particular gifts that are mentioned there. And they are, for the most part, different than the gifts that will be mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For I say through the grace that is given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For, as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, And again, we'll be looking at that in 1 Corinthians as well. Verse 5 says, "...So, we being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them." Underline that. "...Let us use the gifts that God has given each one." That's important. That is central to where we will be headed in the weeks ahead. Remember, God has given gifts unto His children. He loves to give good gifts unto us. And those gifts include these things and things such as these that are very important in the ministry of the body of Christ. Having gifts, therefore, differing according to the grace that is given to us, verse 6 tells us, let us use them, if prophecy Let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Those are gifts of the Spirit. And those are things that, for the most part, should be naturally Observed among the body of believers. There are administration gifts talking, uh, spoken of here. There are gifts uh, that are practical gifts, gifts of giving, gifts of mercy, gifts of leading. Uh, these are things that we need the Holy Spirit's empowerment to do well and to be successful in accomplishing that which God has called us to do as we come together as members of the body. Back into Ephesians chapter 4, where we were earlier, I uh, would like to finish with the passage of Scripture in chapter 4 that speaks of a few other gifts as well. And then we'll close with the naming of the gifts in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Well, In chapter 4, the book of Ephesians, beginning with verse 11, says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor-teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What a wonderful thing that Paul is saying here. It is something that should be our goal Notice what he's saying. The purpose of these gifts being given is for the edifying of the church, for the equipping of the saints, so that we might be not only one body, but become together perfect in the sight of God. It's a tall order, but it's doable. It is, it is God's purpose, His plan, His desire for us. But if we hinder the work of the Holy Spirit by grieving Him, if we hinder the Holy Spirit by quenching the Spirit, then we shorten our expectations of the perfection that is intended for us to have. So the choice is really ours, although the Spirit is willing. Sometimes the flesh is weak. However, if we rely on the Spirit, if we lean on Him, For everything that He wants to do in and through us, we can have the victory that is to be ours in Christ Jesus. He is willing to transform us into the image of Christ. He is willing to conform us into that very likelihood, likeness rather, of Jesus. And this is what we are looking for. This is what we are striving for. This is why we find that the need for us to understand that these gifts that are mentioned in all three of these locations, in Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and here again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, they are important for us today. We need the Spirit of God, we need His power. One of the things that we find reading through the book of Acts is that the Spirit empowers those who seek after His empowerment. They cry out to God, fill us again, fill us afresh. And so it should be for each and every one of us. Fill us, O God, that we might be emboldened in these last days to proclaim your word of truth to this lost and dying generation. So back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let's read from verses 6, or rather 7 rather, to 11. Verse 7 of chapter 12, 1 Corinthians. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of one? No. For the profit of all. The whole body benefits. That's what the word edification means. It means for the benefit of others. For the profit of all. Verse 8 continues. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. He wills it. He did then, He does now. I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable with this teaching that we are going to be entering into with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. I would pray that each one of us would approach this with an open mind, trusting that this is indeed the Word of God. And as Peter told the disciples in his day, that this promise of the Spirit of God to be poured out unto all flesh, was to them and their children and to all who would come, all, including you and me. So let's keep that in mind as we consider the things of God as He lays out for us the power of the Holy Spirit as He wills to be known among us. Next time, we'll be looking at some of these gifts together. God bless you till then.